0: Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first.
1: ProPilot is an advanced driver-assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
0: with me, Rich Pullen.
1: Rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside. Beautiful play! That is that! What a good shot! Oh, it's a perfect goal! By Kennedy's foul! Well Far post for Shearer, goal! 4-0! That's Steve Wise. Takes to Mitchell! It's another goal! Incredible! Pommel! Taylor has scored! And that's Shawnee! Yeah! Yes! No no we no win this league anyway He's hit it. It's oh,
0: he Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Low Strangers. Thanks as always for listening. My guest for this episode is award-winning journalist Sam Mooreshead. In 2012, Sam got himself a dream job covering Swindon Town. For the Swindon advertiser. Town had just won the League Two title, the club were getting national attention because of a certain Italian manager, and times were very exciting for all concerned. But then, in early 2013, things started to change, and we shall be discussing these events in depth throughout this episode. There was so much ground to cover, too much in fact, but we gave it one hell of a go. Sam was in tremendous form, and I thank him for his time. So it's time to sound the hooter for episode 12 of the love strangers enjoy
2: hope you are well I am very well thank you very much just having a a bit of a break after the cricket season which is what I do now apparently and before they all go on tour and the sort of funny hours start but yeah very well thank you
0: lovely stuff so what we're going to do for this episode is we're going to go through the eras where you were chief football writer and we're going to break it down to Andrew Black era Jed McCrory era and Lee Power era era as well. Now, during the championship season, uh, you were working for the Press Association covering football across the South West. I imagine you still managed to get quite a lot of Swindon in?
2: A little bit, yeah. Unfortunately, in that time, there was a few other clubs a little bit higher up that fell under my remit, like Cardiff uh reading and horribly bristol city as well so didn't get to see as much of swindon that year as as perhaps i would have liked particularly given what happened on the pitch so um a few pre- a few press conferences here and there and the odd game but not much more than that it, that was that was gary rose's year you know that he was uh he was the man who was all over that. And Gary Rose
0: benefited from it because he got himself a nice little job (laughs) with the BBC. But that opened up the door for you to become Chief Football Writer at the Swindon Advertiser in 2012. And you work predominantly with Andy Warren and Craig Lias during your time there. What was the general vibe like in those
2: earliest interactions with the club? So you're talking in 2012? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that wasn't too bad. There, There was some interesting conversations that we had during the time, you know, Jeremy Ray was quite an astute chairman and quite an astute PR man. Um, he knew how to turn it on the press when he didn't like what was being said, but equally he knew how to sort of satisfy and satiate the press as well. So there was an element of respect between local media and him. There were some funny, strange sort of moments. There was always the the controversy around Paolo. He would always do something and Jeremy would always leap to his defence because obviously Jeremy was a big fan of Paolo, the West Ham tie particularly, but the relationship between us and the club then was uh, i was critical friends you know we we would criticize them when we thought it was right and they would criticize us when they thought it was right but generally there was a mutual understanding that the two benefited one another um so it was it was relatively productive for a period and obviously then things started to to go all kinds of weird at the club and at that point any kind of relationship with the press goes out the window because you're finding different stories out every every other hour, and and then that sort of relationship is very different. But um, to start with yeah, it was, it was good. It was a ni- it was a nice place to be. There was you know a good, good vibe around the place. They're building a really decent team, spending a lot of money, a lot of Andrew Black's money, um, and uh, that pre season tour to, to Italy, for instance, was was really good fun. On the
0: Jeremy Ray front, I think <laughs> I remember quite. Um... Vividly, he went on a proper PR run when Luke McCormick um, was, was training yeah. with the club, wasn't he? And he, he, he did the rounds, went national with that, justifying that.
2: Yeah, that was, uh, that was an interesting one. Obviously, at the ABBA, we picked up on Luke McCormick's past, as you would expect. It was not a great time for me, that I remember, because obviously you have an obligation as a journalist, whichever club you're covering, to report news as is in front of you. And not to take too much of an angle when you're trying to report news rather than the opinion pieces or the comments, things like that. Um, I remember for Luke McCormick, we had to we had to present this side of him that, you know, this was a guy who had his past. He'd been done for what he'd been done for. And obviously he'd served at served this time. Um, but there was definitely a part of the Swin and town fan base at that point who did not agree with the decision that he should be given a trial. now. It to say at the time, whether I agreed or not, I can't actually remember whether I agreed or not with it. But what I had to report was both sides. One side was obviously bringing up his past. And the people who thought, well, he's done his time, this is Swindon, the paper should be backing Swindon and all the decisions that they make, they didn't like that very much. And it was only, I mean, this must have been two months, less than two months into my time as chief sports writer, which was the job that I'd grown up dreaming about from when I was like 10 years old. It was the job that I would wanted to do. I remember uh, reading John Ritson and Matt Reader uh, when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 and going on press, uh, sorry, work experience with uh, with John and stuff like that and thinking this is the job that I wanted to be in and then two weeks into the job that I was in uh, and got there, it was suddenly presented with this story which was dividing the fan base and dividing the readers. I remember you know, you're told, don't go below the line on the on the sports section. And I always thought that that was the wrong advice. I, I read every single comment on every single article that I wrote or that was written about Swindon. I remember there were one or two comments beneath that Luke McCormick piece that were told that was sort of, they weren't particularly offensive, uh, but they were, they were sort of having a go at this, this new guy who, you know, calling him an Oxford fan, call, you know, saying, what's this about? He obviously hates the club, all of this kind of stuff. And as a kid who supported the club from six years old and growing up with all of the experiences, all of the ups and all the downs, and got to the job that I really loved and really wanted to be in, I remember that that was really hard. I, I drove to um, see my girlfriend, who was at university in Oxford, that evening, um, and she was very good, but I was really quite upset then. I think that was the first time, and I don't remember there being another time that I've been quite that upset about comments directed at me and I've been called all sorts of things, as Mm. I'm sure we'll Mm -hmm. talk about later. But I remember that first experience of it and that experience of being a journalist and getting some really not particularly abusive but just spelt really personal to a twenty uh what would I been, twenty four year old. Then it was yeah, it was it was a sort of experience that hardens you, but I remember it I remember it vividly as being Hang on a minute! I I am a Swindon fan. What do you? Why are you? Why are you saying otherwise? And yeah, that was uh, that all comes from that just that one story of Luke McCormick. Allison's gone well, but surrounded by those players and still managed to find a way out to Paul Allen. Here's Walters. We've got some strength in the box here. If you can get the cross in Walters, and he can, and Allison's there. Well, that's an absolute peach of a goal.
0: The feel-good factor was significant uh, within the fan base at that time, the best probably since Glenn Hoddle was in charge. How does or how should the day-to-day relationship between a local paper and a football club work?
2: Well, I think, first of all, it depends on what level the football club's at um, and for how many brands they're protecting or commercial agreements, you know, other re- external relationships. I'm, I'm certain that a Manchester United would operate differently from the town, Um and understandably so, they're much more in the public eye on a global scale. But for, in, in my opinion, a, a club the size of Swindon, uh, in a community the size of Swindon, and what that club should be to the town of Swindon, should be using the opportunity to express its message through the local paper and to listen to its fan base through the local paper. Because usually, if a journalist is any good, it will, he, he or she will try and take a gauge of the general mood and then reflect that in his or her writing and if they don't do that which i'm obviously going to have been guilty of at some point then they've got to make sure that they correct themselves but generally they'll do it and that means the, the local club needs to listen to them and sometimes they did it sometimes they didn't do it um i don't think that they should uh, necessarily bow to every single request that the local paper makes that's that's mm-hmm. silly you know we couldn't ask for every single player, every single day for interview, because, you know, they've got jobs to do first and foremost. They're there to be professional athletes. They're there to play football. Um, they're there to win matches. But if you've got an opportunity to talk as freely as possible or have open lines of communication so that you get to know each other, so that there's something personal about the relationship, then because you both got relatively, relatively important, and not hugely important, but relatively important positions within the town of Swindon, those people talking to each other, it's like heads of, heads of business, for instance, talking to each other. Major major players within the local business scene, if they get on well, then the economy is likely to be better. From a sporting point of view, if the club and paper get on OK, then there's generally going to be a better atmosphere about it, which means that both sides can manage success and failure better. Um, and Swindon achieved this at some point during my time there. And the advertiser achieved it too. And vice versa, there were points at which the advertiser failed to do what we were trying to do. Um, and we weren't helped by the attitude displayed by the people who were in charge of the club. So it's, it's a curious dynamic. It's, it's a lot about ego. It's a lot about negotiation. Um, and if you've got a clash of individuals and a clash of characters, it can cause a little bit of a problem. And, and we ran into that some, some of the way.
0: Moving on, I suppose it, it was clear that Towns business model was unsustainable during DeCanio's first season. But personally, the first two real concerns for me took place post League Two championship. The first was the ruthlessness Um, of moving contracted players out on free transfers where we could have easily got small fees for Jonathan Smith Mm. and Alan Connell while Lee Cox who had only just arrived at the club was exiled were there any sorts of questions regarding sustainability raised at that time
2: Uh, Well, that was the crossover time between Gary and myself I don't I don't remember particularly at that point them being raised obviously they were raised during the course of the following season Mm. just just as a matter of course because they were investing a large amount of money and putting in what at the time was a huge wage bill for a League One team, what we were frequently told at the time was, um, Andrew Black is happy to invest this money. This is part of the plan. This is part of this five-year plan to, to get swimming to up the divisions and get into the championship potentially further, um, which we all know has um, turned out to be a ludicrous idea. But there was concern over sustainability. And I remember writing about my concern about sustainability at some point during the De Canio era. I can't tell you off the top of my head exactly when it was and this was this was because of not the immediate money going in but what happens if the money stops as it did and what position were the club going to be left in I don't think that when they were spending the money anyone was thinking that they were going to stop I think Jeremy had got this idea from from Andrew he'd got the well he'd been given the sense from Andrew who obviously he knew really well and they were close friends for a long time that this was the way in which he wanted to do and he was happy in doing it. And Andrew obviously had his own opinion of how it was going and how much money he wanted to put put in. And at some point he got spooked, which is a, an appropriate term for him given all of his, his love of horses. But he got spooked. It might have been that he had conversations with financial advisors that were sort of saying, well, what money are you making out of this? Is this actually going to benefit us in any way? Remember, he was not a football man. He's not a football fan. He went and watched... Maybe half a dozen Swindon matches during his time as owner. He, he was doing it because of his friendship with Jeremy, um, and they had a good relationship to start with. But he got spooked by it at some point and decided, no, this is this is not what I want to be doing anymore. At that point, you have Jeremy thinking, well, why 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 is the landscape changed for no particular reason? In his mind, perhaps, and that's where the breakdown occurred. But I don't believe that they ever thought that it was unsustainable when they were going along with the plan that was originally put in place. Andrew had one idea about it. Jeremy had another, but they both thought, yes, this does work. But like I say, at some point the landscape changed and that was why it was unsustainable is because there was no backup plan. There was no second route. If Andrew decided, no, I don't want it anymore. Then how does a club that's spending well beyond its means in terms of its revenue actually survive? And that's what the initial spark was to that period of uh, six and a half, seven months between when that transfer embargo first came down before that Berry game uh, in, I think it was in September in 2012, uh, and then all the way through via the various bits to do with De Canio, McCrory, King, uh, power, all the way through till, till April. It was all sparked by that just slight shift from where people thought each other was and where people thought their project was going. And that's why it's, it, it's so amazing that a football club can be in such a precarious position that that sudden change of mind can cause a bit of trouble. Um, I, I mean, no one meant to hurt the club you know, out of those guys, but it just turned out that it wasn't particularly thought through the contingency. Plan A was fantastic, plan B not so much the
0: project between uh, Andrew Black and Jeremy Ray got you a trip to Italy uh, for it did, pre-season yeah.
2: training um, prob- yeah, I was told many times by my sports editor at the time Steve Butt and by Craig and by Andy and by Ned Payne who was there at the time that uh, this was just a holiday <laughs> so if this, it's the most exhausting exhausting holiday that I ever went on that trip it was uh, 13 days of non-stop from 7 in the morning until 9 in the evening but it was great fun to see to see how that all works and to see what Paolo put them through. I'm glad that I was watching and not taking part. So how
0: did you find (laughs) Paolo Di in those early months?
2: Well, as as an individual, as a person, I really enjoyed his company. I hated his answers to questions because it left me transcribing the answers for hours afterwards. I didn't like that he would sometimes be so late for a press conference that it basically took up your whole day. There was a time where me and Chris Wise and at the time Chris Tanner, who was the uh, press officer there, we must have waited for two and a half hours upstairs in the chairman's lounge for him and it's you know it's okay for people to be half an hour you kind of expect it as a journalist that people can be late and you just you just have to factor it in but when you've got four pages or whatever of swin and town coverage to do and you've got an 11 o'clock deadline and there's potentially speedway or ice cream, whatever else is going on that night if you only finish listening to Paolo speak at about half past five in the evening And it takes about two to two and a half hours to transcribe his quotes and try and turn some of them into English that your readers can understand. Then you're really up against all kinds of deadlines at the end of it. So uh, I didn't like that element of it. Um, I didn't agree with his politics at all. If you can take the politics away, and as an individual, he was funny. uh, He was engaging. Um, he was willing to speak his mind in front of you, uh, so there was very little backstabbing stab- going on. If he didn't like something that you were talking about, he'd tell you. If he disagreed with you, he'd tell you. Uh, and equally, he was willing to compliment uh, and be a, a genuinely nice guy. Uh, he bought the three of us, me and Chris and Chris, uh, dinner on one night. One night on Lake Garda, and on that on that tour, he, he picked out a restaurant that he um, he really liked himself because uh, we'd asked him for somewhere to go, and. When we tried to pay for the bill that evening, he had paid for the whole thing in advance. And the waiter came and said, no, no. Well, he never said that Paolo had paid, but (laughs) there couldn't couldn't have been anyone else. We we couldn't possibly have thought we would have paid for that. Um, So he he had a generous side. He was an interesting character. He was full of life. Uh, He was brilliant for the media in terms of delivering uh, storylines, delivering quotes once you made sense of what he'd actually said um but there were elements of it too that I disagreed with I disagreed for instance with the way in which he treated Paul Bowden and the way in which he treated the youth department at Swindon but I agreed with the way in which he said about his team to get out of league 2 uh, I agreed with the way he used the money that he was given him and his recruitment made sense but you know he was a he was a completely divisive character as was seen by people deciding they weren't going to come and watch because he was the manager because of his you know his fascist tendencies. Well, okay. as a, as a, just an individual, he'd stripped back from, from all of the sport and all of the politics. He was genuinely engaging one of the most fascinating characters that I've ever worked with. There were elements that uh, I didn't like about him.
0: What about his staff? Because when I was talking to Rafa De Vita, he insinuated that they were essentially on 24 hour call.
2: Yeah, well, that was the whole point of his staff is they were loyal as anything to him uh, and they were his, his yes men effectively They were good at his job at them. but well Fabrizio was was always there to be by Paolo's side and he would never he would never give up on him and he would never say a word bad about him and he would never give away any information and he would always rely on what Paolo had said and not want to go against him uh, Claudio Donatelli uh, was a fascinating character for a man who didn't speak a whole, a whole lot of English um, he he was just—he was funny in he, his limited English that he could speak. I'm, I still occasionally speak to Claudio on uh, on LinkedIn these days, um, and he, he's he's now does speak a fair amount more English than he did before. Um, but he was—he was a good guy, and Dominic Duardo again, funny character. Enjoy enjoyed being in his company, but between them, they were they were just as color, boys, you know. It was like like his entourage, literally. If he went somewhere you know that they would be there if he wanted him to be there but so uh, i guess that's how he ran his how he ran his team you know there was a there was a bit of the military side of it to it, and, and that's just how he got his results you know that has a different effect on different players but in that season in league in league two and certainly from the start of league one even if players didn't really enjoy the training that they were going through they definitely enjoyed the results they were getting at the end of it and so s- somehow that works i don't know if it could have worked over a prolonged period or a higher period a higher level um... where there's more ego we saw at sunderland maybe it, there are ways in which it cracks but uh, that was just his style it was good it was it was interesting to watch that's for sure if they won send me off
1: every game no problem i will win this league anyway because my team is a strong team they are worth. we play football even if they send me off we win this league no problem
0: We'll talk about Andrew Black's statement a bit later. But in it, he suggested that Jeremy Ray and, to a lesser degree, Nick Watkins were lost within the excitement of having a West Ham legend in
2: the, in the form of Di Canio at the club. Was that ever apparent? Uh, not Nick. I, I don't believe that I ever saw that. Jeremy lost. I, think, I mean, Jeremy adored Paolo, but that's because he was a West Ham legend and Jeremy was a big West Ham fan. And also, Jeremy was the man who looked to Paolo to be the right man to go for, with no managerial credentials or anything. He was his guy. So I think there was an element of him being enamoured by him. Yeah. I I think that's a fair criticism. I don't know whether Jeremy would say that it was fair. And only he can honestly say whether he let his feelings for West Ham or the image of Paolo in his mind take away from the job that they were doing together but the ways in which he defended the spending of money made sense from a logical point of view when he came and talked about Paolo's money um and how much he should be given and how much he'd been promised i i'm sure that deep down he'll say that yeah he probably would have been a little bit more lenient with Paolo because of who he was than he would have been with another manager who wasn't of his of his standing or heritage Um, but yeah i i don't think that it was a huge factor but it was certainly at play there
0: the start of the uh 2012-13 season (laughs) is strong town enjoy a nice little league cup run as a fan do you kind of wish that you were in the in the stands as opposed to writing and rewriting match reports
2: depends depends what i've just written about um (laughs) to be honest because i know that there are plenty of town fans who i could share a uh, a stand with and and if they were to recognise me probably wouldn't want me to be in there for, for whatever reason um, but I did have a lot of enjoyable times at as a student etc going to these games big games Leeds away for instance I wasn't a student then I was in my first job when I was a junior at the advert but I wasn't working that weekend and went up there and won 3-0 and Painter and Austin scored those goals That's just the, those kind of days that's the most amazing atmosphere to be in and you do as a journalist have to hide a lot of that when you're in a press box and occasionally it does pop out of you I know that Andy Warren got a great big kiss on the top of his forehead when uh, Aidan Flynn scored in that last minute of extra time at, um, at Brentford in the playoffs and I know that there was a lot of fist pumping going on from Messrs. Hannah and Trebsky when the uh, I can't even remember who scored that late goal at Stoke in that ridiculous League Cup game. Um, so you, you sort of see some bits sort of pop out here and there, but generally you have to hide it to yourself. But in those big moments, when you see everyone jumping up and down and sharing that moment together, and you're there trying to, you know, get this rewrite out because Flint has completely changed the, the, the complexion of your match report and you've suddenly got 1,000 words to submit on a on penalties instead of 1,000 words on a defeat, then you don't have the time so much for it or you're not allowing yourself the time to think about what's just happened. Um, And that can be a little bit frustrating when you watch it back and you see video of it and you think, oh, what I'd given to have been in that crowd. But on the other hand, I was being paid to go and do the job that I'd wanted to do since I was 10 years old. Around the country, seeing the team play week in, week out, being as close to the team as anyone (laughs) should be. And so you kind of have to balance it out. I'm incredibly privileged to have done all the jobs that I've done. Some times people might say that I've not done them particularly well, or I've not done them the way that they feel that they should have been done. That's fine for people to think that way. But I'm very privileged to have done it. And so I always have to remind myself of that when I'm in these positions and thinking, well, what I couldn't have done for with beer at half time. Now it's, I know that I'm going to be able to go and see this game and that game. And, and that, that means that your job becomes more like a hobby. And when... You have a hobby, you don't feel quite like it's it's so much at work. Um, so, yeah, I, I did miss out on a lot, but I was also able to see a lot more too.
0: In October 2012, when you're still a few months into the job, Sir William Patey, the former ambassador to Afghanistan, for goodness sake, um, comes in and replaces Jeremy Ray. And the club have, have already earned themselves a transfer embargo. Uh, Patey's job was to sell Swindon Town. Did you have any conversations with him during that time?
2: I had about three conversations with Sir William Patey. I remember finding out about uh, Jeremy being uh, stripped of the chairmanship on a Sunday afternoon. I want to say it was Coventry was the game that we played the day before. I think it was Coventry. I think it was a home draw. Um, and we yeah, I think so. Sorry. Um, and I got a call that evening on the Sunday evening uh, just before just before deadline the paper saying Jeremy Ray has had a taken off him and uh, this guy, Sir William Patey, is going to come in. And I was saying, well, who's Sir William Patey? And, you know, he said, well, he's the former ambassador to Afghanistan. And at that point, you thought, hmm, is this is this? real is this source legitimate <laughs> like, <that's, laughs> that seems like a bit of a weird one uh, but I trusted the source in question there's no for me there was no reason to doubt them so we had a we had a sort of conversation me and my sports editor at the time about this and we was quite close to the deadline and in the end we didn't run it on the back page of the Monday paper I was very conscious that if this was real then it was likely because Chris Wise over at the BBC is a tremendous journalist and it was always great fun Trying to get stories against him, that he was probably onto it too. And if it was real, then, and he found it out, then I didn't want to be looked to be behind. So I remember I was living in Warminster at the time, and I, I had to get up at about three thirty, four in the morning, uh, write streams of copy about something that I wasn't convinced was true or not. Get into the office and then have it all set up so I could be listening to the BBC Wiltshire First Morning Bulletin at six a.m. And at the moment that I heard Chris's voice, his fantastic voice, his match of the day voice now, for heaven's sake, yeah. saying, Jeremy Ray's been stripped of the chairmanship, and so William Patey is taking uh, taking it on. Then it was like, oh, phew, this was not a wasted four o'clock alarm call and send it all live. Um, anyway, it's another tangent. I'm sorry, Rich. Uh, the, the talk is William Patey, to have a conversation with him. Yeah, a, a couple. He was not a football man, he was not the right man for that job. He, really should never have been appointed uh he might have been a business appointment uh I, I don't know a huge amount of his background but he he didn't speak like a man who was going to engage with people the people of swindon all the people of swindon um, and it was just ne- it was just never going to work to be quite honest paul Bowden from the spot for swindon he scores
0: for one month in 2013 and that is (laughs) january to february because that is when shit hit the fan something different almost at one stage every other day um it starts in mid january when andrew black puts town up for sale officially Mm. was that out of the blue or did you have an idea um that that was happening
2: yeah, I, that one was obviously broken by Chris at the BBC. I had an I had an anonymous phone call about midway through January about that, and I couldn't I couldn't find a, enough corroborating evidence at the time to, for me to run it. So we were we were aware that it was likely, but we didn't have the enough substance to run a story on it. Obviously, Chris got got that story out first, but we weren't taken aback by it. So we, we knew that there were there were things afoot, if not. Uh, able to, to prove it enough to run to run it in print. What was the? I mean, when you're talking to
0: <laughs> members of the club, members of the staff, members of the team, um, were they just as business as usual?
2: Uh, well, I mean, not really, because I mean, nev- nothing ever was business as usual at that point at Swindon. It was it was always something was going on from that September, from that transfer embargo when De Canio announced that he was under a transfer embargo in a uh, Nothing was ever just normal. There was always something strange that was going on, whether it was ridiculous results on the pitch, like that one at Stoke, like being nil-nil at Portsmouth on New Year's Day, and James Collins scoring five. Whether it was beating Wigan in the cup, whatever it was, nothing. Well, that was the previous year, sorry, but nothing was ever normal. It was always something weird, and then when it starts stretching into off the pitch, nothing's normal. So. The, the club were always on the hoof a little bit, trying to catch up, as we all were, because things moved so fast. And I really felt for the guys in the in the press department for for Tom and for Chris, because it was impossible for them to catch up. They, you know, we could try and ask them about things that were going on, but it could have moved on from the last time they received a briefing from someone. We might have got frustrated in the media from not getting enough information, but perhaps they were getting frustrated because they couldn't get the information from above themselves. And that's because the people at board level probably didn't really have a grasp on what was going going on at any given time. It was, it was a very curious time. You know, you get a text message on uh, Tuesday night at Leighton Orient, it's bloody freezing, and you're top of the press box at Leighton Orient, which basically has a vertical drop. And you're standing at the top, and you suddenly re- get told that the whole whole squad is up for sale, or mm-hmm. a fire sale, or just out of the blue. I got, I got a text from that about halfway through that game. And I'm trying to think, well, how am I going to get any information on this? Am I going to firm it up? Well, it's good because I've got the media department right here next to me. They're covering the game. It couldn't really answer any questions because it, it sort of comes out of left field from from a different area of the club, somewhere that's not playing. And when you've only got a, a media team of two, you can't cover every aspect of what's happening. So I think it was very difficult for the media. It was very difficult for the media department. And it was very difficult for the people running the club to create a coherent communication strategy at that time. And unfortunately, that just created absolute chaos or i think we called it like nine months of mayhem in our end of season review it was just it was just all over the place but looking back i can understand why it was all over the place
0: uh, it, it makes sense after a couple of false alarms from uh tans media who had put this message out several times before it actually came to being which was the selling of matt ritchie to bournemouth um, a day before yep. deadline day. How did you react to that news? Uh, my vivid memories is Matt Ritchie just looking and sounding completely dumbfounded by, by everything that was going on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I was playing futsal, uh, futsal in Swindon at Cambry Park. And I was, well, it was just before, I was just getting ready, getting changed. And I got a phone call from Phil Spencer uh, Paolo's agent saying they well I cut out the language but they've just sold they've sold Matt he wasn't happy they've sold Matt Ritchie they've sold Matt Ritchie and he was just he was not happy he was the message that I was getting there was that Paolo was not aware of it and that's the message that Paolo ran with as well subsequently is that he wasn't aware that they were selling him and certainly he wasn't aware that they were selling him for as cheap as they were selling him obviously we we know why he was that was so cheaply, is because they needed the cash up front with no sell-on clause, and that they could they could help pay for some of the of the wages going forward. But he was not happy on that day, which I'm not sure which one that which day that was exactly, but he 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 was not happy, and that moment that sale was what pushed Dicanio over the edge, in my opinion, in terms of him feeling that his position was no longer tenable. And obviously, a, a few days later, he released the first statement through through us at the advert, and then another week later. We revealed that he'd he'd quit, or two weeks later, that he'd quit. But it was it he wasn't happy beforehand uh, when Bernie Ray was was taken away from the club. But he was sort of willing to work through that. It's when a second time, I guess maybe there's an element of him feeling betrayed. Perhaps you know he's always prone to the dramatic, and and that could be taken very personally by him. But that second time, that when Matt Ritchie was sold, as far as any briefing would go for us that was him not knowing that it was happening and him very unhappy about it and i I thought from that moment i felt that the relationship between him and the club was irreparable he lasted for a couple of weeks obviously but
0: i mean i think we all knew before that but that was when you knew it was over really the next day though if if the next day goes successfully it's not that bad because uh We've got Marlon Pack, Bradley Wright-Phillips and Danny Green in the building. Um, it's a day that I'll never really forget as a Swindon fan because I was with you <laughs> that whole day. Um, you were doing all the work, but I was at home refreshing my mobile <laughs> up until midnight. Walk me through that
2: day. Oh, right. So on those deadline days, obviously, we did that blog. It was something that we had a, a lot of enjoyment with and uh, it got a good numbers. So that obviously means an early get-up and knowing that a lot of is, is going to happen. So most of the office is shifted to work later because we know that there's going to be things going on in the evening. But for me and Andy, it was a, a full on day, a whole day. So we were in at seven and we knew we'd be working through until about midnight or one o'clock. And the morning seemed to progress as normal. You were getting updates from the, rel- the respective agents um, of uh, Green and Pack, uh, who I believe shared the same agent at the time, and Wright Phillips. And everything seemed to be ticking along okay. There wasn't really any indication that nothing was going, that something was going to go wrong, that these weren't going to go through. Uh, then we sort of get the indication from the media department that, yes, they're down there, the are doing their interviews. And obviously the club had done all of the media, the in-house media firm, So they were all ready to announce all of them. Um, and we got through till about seven, I'd say. And there hadn't been any of the three. And we knew they'd all been in the building for a considerable period of time by this point. And... There should be no reason, no logical reason why that would not have gone through. At least one of them wouldn't have been announced. As a, as a media department, you want to be announcing your major signings, and they were big players at that level. You want to be announcing them at rush hour on deadline day. You don't want to really be sending them right the way through until 11, not when people have gone to bed or whatever, looking after the kids. You want it bang, 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 four, five, six o'clock. Makes everyone feel really good about themselves. What a great day we've had! So we got to seven o'clock, eight o'clock. Nothing's coming out. And at this point, I'm, like, I'm looking at Andy, and Andy's looking at me, and we think something is going on here that it doesn't make any sense. But no one at the club knows. No, the agents don't know. And I, so, so what's the problem? And obviously, this problem was that they were waiting for some sort of clearance from the football league, which they didn't get because they were under a transfer embargo. And so the, the later that we push on, at that point, I have no idea about this transfer embargo. And pushing on later and later into the evening, and it's getting to our deadline. So at the APA we had we had a couple of print deadline runs, and depending on which we were going to uh, use, whether the early or the later one, would depend really on other uh, papers within the NewsQuest group that were having later deadlines. We had a later one that night, so we would have had an 11 o'clock deadline which is obviously com- completely useless for, for deadline day. So we knew that we were going to be pushing them back a bit. So we, we get closer and closer and we think, well, at the moment we look at our page plan and it has nothing on the back page, nothing on two inside pages. There's a load of copy that's written, but we can't say that these guys have signed if they've not signed. And if they haven't signed, why haven't they signed? And at this point, my, my, uh, my deputy sports editor, would have been Craig at the time, he to me and says, well, what's the situation? I don't know. I don't know. It was hard to find out any information. So I get later and later into the evening. And I'm still making these phone calls. I'm walking around the office with my hand on over my head on one phone and trying to tap out email with another. And I'm not getting anywhere because none of the agents know anything. The media the media department, they well, if they don't know anything, they're not saying anything. And the way in which Tom and Chris were speaking that night Chris was speaking that night, he didn't know anything. So we get to eleven o'clock. It's our deadline. We don't have a paper to put out yet. Okay, call call into the printers uh, in Oxford. Yes, I know it's printed in Oxford, and tell them. Okay, you're going to have to put it back an hour. They don't like this, but they they've experienced it before. Um, we get so we're now trying to look at, look at any reason why these deals haven't gone through. So I start having a look at EFL. Well, they were football league back then rules and regulations, blah, blah, blah. Is there any reason why they wouldn't have announced it? Talk to Chris Tanner. Is there any reason why it's not happening? No answer, no answer, no answer. Are we going to get a paper out? So I write I write one full set of copy for the event that they have signed, and then I have to write another full set of copy, as inside spread and a back page, uh, which is completely the opposite, without any real information. Um, and then... We get past, I think we got through midnight as well that night before we managed to actually send a paper off or before we got any actual information out. So we're sitting there in an office in Swindon, an an asbestos-clad office, I might add. Um, And we're looking at each other and I turned to Andy and I said, I have no fucking idea what's going on. And it's like, it's midnight on deadline day and we should have signed three players and the copy's all written for it and it's ready to go but i don't know whether they've signed or not and uh, at that point was one of my sort of lower as a journalist because i i was completely having been in the loop really quite a lot for for that season i was i felt completely out of it um and then obviously we then subsequently found out that there was this embargo and that that's the reason why they haven't signed and that the the whole shitstorm that was about to follow was only just coming into view on the horizon but Oh, we got a paper out eventually, remarkably. um, I think we called it Dudline Day on the back page. I I, I always respect uh, Craig, the deputy editor, for putting together a spread with whatever we went with at the end in terms of the page design. He had about 10 minutes to do those back three pages. And anyone who's a page designer uh, at the newspaper will know that that's, that's some task to get that all done. And, and he managed to get it so we actually got a paper out and we closed that live blog maybe just before one o'clock in the morning that day um, we thought that was going to be the longest day of the year of course it wasn't
0: <laughs> were there any other transfers um, over your time covering Swindon that didn't quite make it through any other names that you heard that didn't get announced oh, at that time well, you're, putting
2: me on the, you're putting me on the spot Rich. I mean, there, were, there were lots of players that, that Paolo went after or was keen or interested in or the People linked with the club uh, and said that this might be a possibility. I think the, the most interesting one that I was ever told was was Mark Cooper saying that they almost got Harry Kane on loan from uh, from Spurs. I guess it must have been just before he went to Leicester or just after he went to Leicester. I'm not sure exactly um, because and although well, I think Mark told that in that like a web chat that we did with him, but I'd been told as well about that beforehand um, when it was inferior possibility. I don't know if it ever was a possibility. Is maybe one of the first uh, signings that that Lee Power, the Lee Power Tim Show, Axis of Evil managed to put together. <laughs> but um, yeah, that that was probably the best name uh, that I can immediately think of off the top of my head.
1: <laughs>
0: Well, let's get to that horizon. Uh, in February, or oh, February 18th, Paolo de Canio resigns, um, and that was another late night.
2: It was. It was too late. Yeah, night late. Nights. The first one was the, there was a statement that was sent out to us uh, by Phil Spencer the, the week before, which was the one that was saying that he was considering his position um that was uh late on a i think it was on a thursday or a friday evening because it was it was just before we went to play crawley and i remember there were some banners in the in the way end at crawley saying don't go parlor um and that uh, i was waiting all day for it in the end i was waiting so long that i gave up well went with my laptop into the pub the local pub at the the old bell hotel in Warminster. and i was on about my fourth pint i think in the evening when i finally got this across from them and so I remember sitting out with a really dodgy Wi-Fi connection operating off the phone and, po- and posting that uh, onto the, the Swinner website. Um, and immediately the, the sort of reaction that got... You sort of, you knew that Decanio Canio was loved by the supporters. But when you put a story like that up that suggests that maybe he might not be feeling loved by the club, you really get a feeling of how much they loved him. Like the immediate outpouring of, you know, say, what are you doing? Why... It, why the club not treating him better, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, with a, interspersed with a few saying, no, he, he should go. He's not right. Um, so that was one long day. But, yeah, the next one, the following, the following week, just before that game at Trammere. And, you know, when you're going for a long trip, for a long away night like at Trammere, because there's no budget for us at, at the ADVA to go and spend a, a night over in a hotel. So you, you drive up. The photographer, Dave Evans, does the driving, drives up. get to the the ground about 6 you cover the game you leave the ground about 11 and then you drive back so for somewhere like Tramnir which is about 4 hours drive ish you're leaving at 2 you're getting back at 3 okay you can put up with that because you get a lion, obviously when your manager who is the most recognised manager in the lower leagues and you know one of the most recognised footballing individuals it's well for quite a long time in anywhere in the football league quits the night before then you don't get that lion at all so we we got to in at maybe six seven in the morning and we were just trying to figure out well, well how are we going to cover this from a car on the way to Trammere? and uh the editor gary lawrence i love gary um and he's a lot for my career but he came up with a bright idea with well sam and andy you have to run a live blog from the front seat of the moving car all the way from Swindon to Tramir, all about Paolo Di Canio quitting. And I was like, okay, okay, Gary, fine, because you don't really you don't argue with an editor, but then as soon as you get out, you argue with your sports editor. And I was saying like to Butty, well, we can't really do this because we don't know anything apart, apart from <laughs> the fact that he's quit. <laughs> and you want me to now run a 12 hour live blog <laughs> all about the fact that he's quit from a car. You know, we can't we can't stay in Twynden and talk to anyone. We've got to be on our on our way. That um, live blog, look, I've, I'm sure if anyone found it on the uh, on the Adver archive, they would say it is the worst live blog they've ever seen in their life. Because there are great big patches where we go through areas of limited signal on the M6 that there's just nothing on it for ages. It was the most pointless pointless undertaking ever. all that time, we're trying to get information, what's happening, what's going next. At that point, I, well actually, a couple of days earlier, I'd learned about Alan McCormack being stripped of the captaincy, and then he was gonna be a substitute. We were talking about all of that that night. Um, They're trying to figure out who's going to come in to replace him, you know. And it's just that, but at the same time, there's this game against a team right at the top of the table. And then they played so well in that as well. And uh, it was just the most bizarre few hours. So we get, get back to Swindon at three, and then I have my extra hour drive back to Warman's, uh Yeah, yeah, to bed at five. And then it's pointless really going to sleep very much that day. Cause at that point, we're then talking about, well, who's going to replace him? What's going on? You know, and uh, yeah. Weird! What a weird time that was. You're bringing back all kinds of memories, Rick.
0: It's what I do. Um, <laughs> it's what the others tell me as well. Um, what was what, what, what were the players like post-match? Was it lockdown? Was it they straight on the bus, or were they talking, or were they just so happy with what was a very
2: good performance? Um, oh god, I can't remember whether they were put up for interview, but it was it was a fantastic performance. I mean, surely Gary Roberts was put up for interview after scoring from his own half. Mm. I, I I can't I can't remember. I honestly can't remember. Um, I not I presume that maybe Fabrizio did the did the press. Um, it was all such a blur by this point. I was operating off probably about two hours sleep in forty eight, and I, I, I really don't remember the aftermath of that game at all. Well, um, there is is one thing that happened around
0: that time that you will remember, and I don't know what point that you would have heard about it, but um, it was the night of the 20th of February where the national press got involved because there was a, inverted commas, (laughs) breaking. What an absolutely bizarre story.
2: Yeah, a really bizarre story. I can tell you exactly how I found out about that. I uh, saw a tweet from who... Was then the sports editor of Daily Mail, he's a guy called Alex uh, Jelski, Jelski. Sorry, um, and he tweeted something about uh, big story at ten thirty. Uh, I wouldn't trust Pauley to Kenny with my keys or something. If you if you look up, it's something like that. You can look; people can look and see what it was. Um, and at that point, I was thinking again. It's ten. It, this must have been about nine nine thirty, and the papers put to bed at that point. Um, except that it's now not put to bed, is it? Because now we've got to find out what Paul de Cano has done with a set of keys. You know, what, what on earth has he done? Has he, he vandalised someone's car? Has he joined a swingers club? What's he done? And I, don't, I have no idea. Again, I mean, at this point, luckily, I did find I managed to get it out of a source from one source, but I wasn't totally happy that there was enough from that source to run the story. So I, I waited to see whether the story was the same in the mail, at which point that was two corroborating sources, so we ran it a little bit later. But yeah, what what a weird story. Um, he obviously really liked those pictures. <laughs> it doesn't stop. Um,
0: I think a day later, Jed McCrory is unveiled as the new as the new owner.
2: Well, my my experiences are varied. Again, as an individual, I quite as a as a one on one person to talk to and be around it's fascinating one of the most interesting characters that I've ever been involved with much like Alan Uh, I definitely misunderstood elements of him and the way in which he was approaching the football club during his early months there Uh, and some of that reporting was probably not the finest of my career I probably wasn't intrusive enough into some of his background um, and I probably let some people down in that. Uh, and I I mean I, I had to live with that. that I, I should have reported elements of it better. That said, I although he is a man who looks for opportunities and he's just found another one at Worcester Warriors in in, in the rugby. Mm-hmm. Um, as an individual, I don't dislike him. For 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 all the people might think about what he he might have done or how the club might have gone if, if he'd been still in charge rather than Lee Power taking over uh, he, he was a man who was relatively kind uh, he was he had a huge heart I think he wanted to do things that he simply didn't have the money or re- resource to do he, he really did want to help people from de- deprived areas and he really did want to make a difference I just don't know if he ever had the capacity to do it my failure was recognising enough that he didn't have the capacity to do it and asking enough questions about what he was going to do with the club or how he was going to fund it going forwards Um, and it's something that I have to accept and people who have given me the time to talk to them about it in terms of town fans etc will know that I'm not particularly happy with the way in which I conducted some of my journalism to do with that reign but in terms of the individual, I'm confident that I portrayed that individual properly. In terms of how he conducted himself, what his opinions were on sport, what his opinions were on how to deal with people, how he related to others, how he conducted himself with the press, um, his just his general humanity. Which those parts, I don't have the same affection for Mister Power. Uh, so there, you know, it's not as it's not as black and white as i thought jed was a shyster i didn't think jed was a shyster i still don't think he's a shyster i think he was trying to find an opportunity in an area which he obviously loves but knew that he was fairly hamstrung by his own resource and so he went about it as he could and i should have picked up more on that than i did but a a genuinely fascinating man to be around so when, he, yeah, so, when,
0: so when he's going from club to club, is he doing it for the right reasons, do you think?
2: I mean, I, I'd be very hard-pressed hard right now to tell you what his reasons are, what his reasons were for looking at Bristol Rovers, what his reasons were, because he tried to get into some football clubs in Scotland as well, what his reasons were for, or are at the moment for going in um, at Worcester, or what his reasons were as well. They looked at Scunthorpe. Um, you know there's lots of areas there but if he's asset if he is asset stripping he's not very good at it and if I mean he's also not he's not very I just don't think that he's there to asset strip I might be entirely wrong but I think that he is a reasonable man that has a large heart and wants to do things that he just can't really do Um, and I I, I got on with him well. There's no secret about that, and he was he was kind to me. But I find it hard to be overly critical of what he was trying to do, um, because I've met much shadier people in the world of football. Um, And I just don't think that he's quite up to that level.
0: On the day that Jed completed the takeover, Andrew Black went on Twitter and he sent (laughs) a series of remarkable tweets explaining his side
2: of the story.
0: And it was absolutely
2: crazy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what was wrong with Swindon at that time, but they did everything in the middle of the night. That I, I was it, like one in. The, I think it was one in the morning. Uh, my girl, well, my wife, then my girlfriend was not happy when she suddenly saw me climbing out of bed, uh, one or whatever it was, <laughs> saying, "I've got to work." Uh, the I, the, the, the uh, owner of Swindon is is going off on one on Twitter, and it must have gone on for an hour and a half. And it was just stop. like tweet after tweet after tweet. Elements of which, yeah, I understood. I talked to him about. Uh, and I'd heard about, and I'd heard both sides from. Elements of which were new, but that was it. Sort of summed up that whole period. Was there was the man who, who had been the owner of the club, who's obviously got a brilliant mind, who went in with all the right reasons with one of his best friends to do a good thing, and were on their way to making that club a championship club. And if it, if he'd stuck with it for six more months, that club would have been a championship club, and they wouldn't have been relegated since and be an established championship club now. He'd have got more revenue streams and he'd been able to find that money to come back and start be able to getting some return on his investment. He just held on for another six months rather than being spooked. But he he just, he lost it. Onto, he was a man that didn't really lose it and he just lost it. And that was just summed up everything. Every, people who didn't really lose it, if you were associated with Swindon Town at that time, you lost it. At some point, you went just mad. You threw, had a moment everyone had one on Twitter all the fans have one in the stands they had one all of us media types we, we all had one when we completely lost track of things that were going on the guys in the club did the players must have done because they were being stretched to within an inch of their lives on the training ground only to suddenly have no manager and, and then have themselves for a bit everyone was going mad and that just that, that series of tweets just summed up the whole experience it was absolutely ferocious frenetic relentless Um, But at the same time, so compulsive that he would have had hundreds of people staying up on whatever day of the week it was just to see what he was going to write next. And that was Swindon. It was mad and it was brilliant to follow. And it was also incredibly sad. I'm glad that it's a little bit less intense now, particularly for my my uh, successes in the local media but uh, it, it, was, it was just extraordinary time.
0: Um, I was one of those ones who stuck with it that night and was <laughs> just- You sound like you stick with a lot of these things, oh, things Rich. Oh my goodness me, well, I really, really do. Richard, he's hit it and it's deflected and Swindon Town have the lead. appoints Kevin McDonald good appointment I was really happy with it I felt a bit sorry for him because it was a great opportunity for him to establish himself as a manager after years of success doing a Aston Villa youth was he up for the fight was he
2: missold Swindon I think yeah I think you're right with the second there I think he was definitely up for the fight you know he he'd gone and chosen a first career management role because he thought this was right this was the opportunity um, I think he was missold it I don't think he had any idea of the absolute shitstorm that he was walking into um, in terms of what was going on behind the scenes Uh, I don't know whether he knew exactly of the level of player the ins and outs control over that that he would have Uh, he was a lovely cordial generous man uh, who was happy to to speak to the press on and off the record and, and make sure that they were properly briefed and if you had an issue he would speak to you, he would pick up the phone he would text you back he was he was absolutely the right manager of a Swindon Town at absolutely the wrong time, and it was really unfortunate for him. And I, I, I imagine it may well have put him off doing um, or applying for any other permanent job in the future. He must have been so badly stung by that. It was it was horrible, really horrible thing to get as your first job. It was just it's just not a job that should have been given to anyway. Obviously, someone has to take it, but no one should have to be having that as their first first job in in football management going out solo I poor guy he was, yeah, he was a lovely man uh obviously an astute footballing mind uh, he would have had the respect of the players but he was trying to pin down a tent in a hurricane and it just wouldn't it just doesn't work
0: hey you earn a bit of recognition during that hectic period um you win edf southwest digital journalist of the year and in 2014 you are press gazettes in the top fifty UK reporters on social media. Someone's,
2: someone's been reading my CV. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember when that was announced. Obviously, because that's the sort of stuff I remember. I don't remember what i was supposed <laughs> to do at work tomorrow, but I remember that um, when you when you got nominated and got that. Got that top fifty
2: place because I think you were quite baffled by it. If I remember on social media, I was media. very
0: baffled. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Absolutely. You find you suddenly find yourself in the same group as Henry Winter, and you think, "Yeah, that's just not right." <laughs> it must have
0: made the late nights, early mornings, no sleep sort of worth it. It was good for the CB.
2: Oh, every single bit about that job made the late nights, early mornings, no sleep worth it. it the, from the the experiences that I got to have with that football club and the travelling the length and breadth of the country and overseas. From relationships that I forged with with fans that I still have today on Twitter, um, even with ones that I've still not met in person that I speak to regularly on Twitter, and the ones that I've subsequently gone and met in real life um, and have developed some sort of relationship with, uh, even to the ones who don't like me and you know have liked to pick out whatever flaw of, of mine that that I obviously have, I. You, you find out a lot about yourself when you're in an industry like this and then when you're in a community, in a bubble like you are when you're covering a local football team. And that was part of everyone. It was players, it was managers, it was boardrooms, it was fans, both pro and anti what I wrote and how I thought. And all of that made me a lot better, both as like a person and as a journalist.
0: Next up is Mark Cooper. Uh, Mark Mark Cooper's appointment um, as assistant manager always made me think that he was next in line for the throne, really. His appointment also concerned me a little bit because he had a reputation for managing dying or basket-clased football clubs, especially in the lower echelons. Um, But I suppose he was the right man at the time.
2: Yeah, I mean, he had some decent results as, as a non league manager as well at the time. Um, working working with a modest budget, he also had a, had a a reasonable uh, experience of working with madcap chairman, which kind of kind of helped. If you look back at his his record with uh, Darlington and uh, uh, and Peterborough and, and various other places, he certainly was not used to any kind of consistency in the boardroom. Um, I think it was a natural pick, wasn't it? It, it sort of made sense that just at a, at a time of constant upheaval there needed to be one constant and and that was him um, I got on with Mark for a long period of time um, and we enjoyed a reasonable relationship I thought that he had uh, a unique way of dealing with the media but one that worked most of the time uh, I don't think he ever managed to figure out how to talk through the media to the fans um, I think that that was often his downfall in that they would maybe perceive him as arrogant or misguided when actually some of the stuff he said made a lot of sense and he spoke with great authority and knowledge about football and taught me a lot about the game of football in general Um, even if people wouldn't necessarily think that he had the tactical brain he certainly expressed it in private conversations he he just ha- he came unstuck because there was a again there was a bit of in I say in fighting there was a rupture and a split and and he found himself on the wrong side of it. And that's just what happened from Swindon Town from 2012 to 2000. And, well, it might even be happening now, I don't know. But uh, it was unfortunate, Mark. He he almost got the team promoted and then had his authority taken from him right at the moment where he needed to be supported the most. And that was... I mean, you you don't prepare for a game against Jermaine Beckford and Joel Garner and not concentrate at least half the time on defensive strategy. So why do they go off and go up to Aston Villa to to Sherwood's pad for a few days before that playoff final and concentrate on offensive formation? It It just doesn't make any sense. Why do you take away the authority of the manager and give it to someone else the moment before you have to play against probably the second best team in that division, Preston, that year, who didn't get promoted, and a team that you know when you play against them well defensively, you can beat them because they did it at the county ground that year. So why why do you change it just before? And that will be a mystery to me and one that will probably be a big regret. Well, not a regret, but something that Cooper will probably look back on and think, well, what could I have done? Not to say that he would have been able to coach a team with a, a captain who was not fit to uh, beat a team who had the two best strikers in the division, but they might have had more of a chance and that was the, that was the whole sadness of where his of his swindon career went. It was that that was the week that defined it. It was only downhill from there, and he wasn't given enough of a chance to show what he could do with that team on the big stage and that, that's that's a shame overall though yeah a, a decent man. Maybe people could call him a little bit vain, maybe. But I mean you're you're trying to clutch at straws. He he was a decent man, a decent football manager, and he very nearly got that very young Swindon team promoted, which would have been pretty impressive achievement.
0: The season before, Lee Power takes over, there's a there's a two and fro, there's a tug of war with Macquarie, it's it's grim it's like a divorce it goes through the courts it's not pretty and also during that time the advertiser are banned for a for a tweet by a fan that had nothing to do with you you end up in the car park with your big coat on and your shiny shoes looking sad um it must have been just a a terribly frustrating time
2: Uh, where do you want me to start with all of that eh? um uh should, should i start with the the ban Why not? people Why not? people want to hear about the ban um, I mean it's been talked to death in, in one sense mm-hmm. um, because it is as was laid out I knew about Mr Ranger being brought back into the team when previously the club were briefing that he was going to be released uh, I knew about it on the Thursday morning uh, and I held I spoke to figures within the club and as a favour to them I had no obligation to. I did not run the story. I did not run the story on Friday in the paper. I did not run the story on Saturday in the paper. I did not run the story online until Dan Hunt, bless him, I love Dan, until Dan had his paw and hanging in his place was Niall's shirt. Subsequently, again, before I even tweeted it, and we are talking about a tweet here as well, which is the ludicrous thing about it, ranger arrives in his big old car outside and instagrams a picture of himself with the caption something to the extent of i'm back so the, here are two uh, fairly obvious pieces of evidence to go with the fact that one i already had it from a source that he was back and two the club did not deny it when i talked to them about it and in fact i came to an agreement that i was not going to run it so i've got like five pieces of of evidence there that it's happening. It's in the public domain. As a reporter, if you don't report something that you know that is in the public domain, you are not doing your job. And yes, in some areas I probably have failed in, in part when I was a Swindon to not do things that maybe I should have done at certain times. But in this situation, I had five pieces of evidence for a fairly ordinary story. It's not groundbreaking, is it? You know, best striker gets his place back. It's, uh, it's actually just common sense from the club. It was a good decision. He was their best striker. Nile Rangers should not be playing at League One level, but he has his problem. What follows is the most ridiculous 48 hour period. And I, I don't use ridiculous lightly because there have been some ridiculous moments, but it's ridiculous in terms of the way in which people reacted to it. I think like, I, I go uh, I to kind of bed on the, sand, on the Saturday night thinking everything's okay. And to be honest, on the Sunday, I don't really hear a lot, but it's on the Monday. I get a phone call from the chairman that is the single most abusive phone call that I've had in my life informing me that I've been banned without me really even having the chance to try and get an answer as to why at the time. And I, I just sort of, I'm, I'm perplexed. I'm sitting in my seat in, in the Adver offices and I'm trying to think, well, what on earth did I do wrong? You know, all this information is in the public eye. but literally why hasn't he banned Dan Hunt? Uh, sorry, Dan. But why hasn't he banned Dan Hunt? What What is it that I've done wrong? And I, I sort of try and think back of it at the time. And there might have been one or two transfer lines, which he didn't particularly like getting out in advance. And that might have contributed to it. But he was telling me that I'd done it over and over again in words that are not quite as um, family friendly, that i i screwed him over over and over again. And I was trying to think, I, Lee, I don't know. I didn't say it to him in my head. Lee, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. And I honestly didn't know what I was talking about. And and that's what was reflected in, in my attempt at explaining it in the paper that week. I just didn't know. I, I had no idea. I mean, subsequently... I was told that there was an element to do with a commercial relationship with the advertiser involving some tickets, uh, some free tickets that were provided to the advertiser, which Lee was not particularly happy with. I've never actually 100% confirmed that. But even if that was part of it, that has nothing to do with me as a reporter. I think part of it might have been to do with how I wrote an article, an interview with Steve Murrell after he was fired in... uh, October, 2013, maybe? I'm not, uh, the dates will be a bit wrong, and it might be that. And I remember that I was at my in-laws house the night that that was published, um, or literally about to publish, and I got a personal phone call from Power that night telling me something to the extent of, you don't want to run this, this might come back and be difficult for you. And I thought, well, yeah, but Steve, this is, uh, sorry, Lee, this is an article that is just an interview with another individual there was no allegations that were made that caused Lee power to put a legal writ on the advertiser, for instance, out of that, that uh, that interview was legally sound. Moral can be an individual that everyone can, can judge however they want to, but the, the interview that was published then was perfectly fine. So it felt to me like this was a, a personal thing. It was, I couldn't find a justification of something that I'd done that was properly wrong at that moment in time. And so I ended up banned. And it wasn't, again, like I, don't need, I don't need the pity. And I know people think that I'm just this bitter, guilted, you know, ex-spouse that just can't get away from the treatment that day. But I ha- people who know me, people who talk to me, I have. I can very easily disassociate between what happened in that month and how I feel about the way he's running the club now. And they're two very different things. I think, personally, he's running the club better now than he was then. And I think that there is a lot about Swindon which has improved in the last two years if not the performances on the pitch. But at that point you have to judge as a reporter whether you feel you're being fairly treated because you've got to then judge the person that is treating you. And at that point I felt that that was just completely unjustifiable bullshit from a man who wanted total control of his club and that didn't like any article that wasn't completely controlled by him. and, you know, the fact that he has his WhatsApp uh, status as uh, Mr. Kim Jong-un has always, is always, in, always, always laughed at that. Always laughed at that. But he was obviously entitled to ban me. Like that's, it's his club. It's like, uh, you know, a restaurant or a bar. They can just they can bar something. That's fine. But I didn't feel it was justifiable, you know. I hadn't got hammered and smashed up his bar. I'd written that a player who was their best player was being allowed to play again, which was the right decision, and then he scored after 22 minutes. For him to then turn around and say, yeah, but Peterborough changed their team, which by the way, they didn't, as I confirmed through the club and their local media, was just ludicrous. It's just made up stuff, and that's what I don't like. Just don't make up stuff. If you don't like it, because you don't like the way I'm reporting on the club, and that's just your personal prerogative. Don't try and camouflage it with some sort of sanctimonious bullshit like that. And that was when I really started struggling to, to understand what he was trying to do. And so in that sense, there, wasn't, there was a personal element to it. But it was founded completely on the fact that I did nothing that should have upset a reasonable man. Anyway, there you go. You've got, you've got your answer for that. Austin, go ahead.
0: Fanzai emerges it receives national criticism from the media what was the reaction within the local media at the time was it laughed off with an eye roll or was it kind of like a what the hell are they
2: thinking or well, I think uh, in one sense Powell was relatively astute in that it's sort of the, the local media does need some a- some element of access to be able to provide some decent content which helps them sell. Papers and obviously for the advertiser. I mean, I was a total then, but for the advertiser selling advertising space in the in the paper is a big part, and and Twin in Town is a big part of that. It's a big draw. So I think he was very astute in that he knew that, in my opinion, he could cut off some some streams of revenue by not being for the paper not being able to produce the content that uh, people would want to buy. Uh, alternatively, he could have thought, well, this is a way of controlling the narrative completely, which is true as well. He had the media. Official media agreement, which was contractual with the BBC. If they hadn't had that, I don't know what would have happened at that point. It would have been interesting to see if the phrase "BBC Watcher understands" had been used as much. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not, you know, not buying information, but they had a they had an obligation to the BBC in terms of coverage, and they the BBC did well to provide fans with some sort of coverage during a period which we found it very difficult to do otherwise. So I think it was very smart from Power. He knew what he was. He knew what he was doing, and it was a it was a business move. There is an element to him that is definitely business savvy. But fans eye, we we received it as both we thought initially it's a joke. You know, it's an app that obviously crashes just about any Android phone that you can use, which, you know, that's pointless. It's got a series of people attached to it who, if you looked into it further, seem to be associated to the people behind the app. So there's it just look it it looked like, though I might be wrong, it was a friends of friends job. And the fact that it's not lasted now is no surprise. And it just felt a little bit like backhanded censorship. And, you know, again, it was his, it's his baby. He can do what he likes with it, but we have an absolute right to object to it. And we objected to it as loudly as we possibly, possibly could because we did not feel. The community of Swindon was benefited by the entire communications output of the football club going through a single editorial body, which was wholly controlled by the man who ran the club. So, you know, we're talking we're talking pravda. It's like completely pointless for anyone to, to want to listen to that nonstop. It, it fulfills a function. I mean, we looked at, for instance, that Manchester City documentary from the other from the other week on Amazon it builds a function but it's not really journalistic it, it doesn't offer the second question the third question it just offers a very glamorous account of what's going on at a football club it's like football through Instagram isn't it mm-hmm. uh, it's, mm-hmm. and, that, and that you know some people like that and that's fine and fans like I would have offered that but I think you should offer a broader selection of media to your supporters and that's where that relationship with, with local press for a club the size of Swindon comes in and he it just decided that he didn't want it which was him and I just disagree with it.
0: We're not covering Martin Ling, Luke Williams. Um, we might go into Spurs B with the next point, which is the Tim Sherwood press conference. Red Bull cans and all. <laughs> I'm quite ashamed to admit when the Red Bull rumour started circulating in the hours before that I wasn't appalled I was kind of like OK well, you were one of the first people to sort of can you believe that they have put Red Bull cans as if people would fall for that because if it was Red Bull taking over the whole room would be one big Red Bull <laughs> logo instead of like two or three cans bought at the nearby Tesco but he couldn't resist as he said the
2: Tim Sherwood saga go <laughs> oh right just go okay. well, first of all with the Red Bull things I thought that was a very funny joke and yeah kudos to him that was great and being in there I, I genuinely did laugh out loud um, and yeah fair enough um, Tim Sherwood go What's it? the appointment of Tim Sherwood sort of like, it made sense doesn't it he's, he's, a, he's a friend of power he knows power he knows how power operates he knows where the club runs because he's been dealing absolutely intricately with it for two three years because of the relationship that Swindon have had with Spurs. Uh, Managers of Swindon have met with Sherwood in previous occasions to talk about their youngsters and see what was going to go on. The relationship makes sense, but it relies on Sherwood not just just, just disappearing Mm -hmm. when Swindon play Mm -hmm. Oxford in a derby and you're the director of football in charge of everything. Uh, Just be there. I mean, I don't know exactly what it was that made him not there. There are rumours, and I don't know whether they're true. So I can't really say. His reign for whatever reason, was just dreadful. And I didn't see enough of the football then, at this time I was working in London, and I didn't get to go out to as much of it as I would have liked. What I saw was not good. But it was more about the relationship that you have with the fans, and someone has to be accountable to them when they're losing. Now, if you present your, manager, sorry, your director of football as the man in charge of picking the team, like a direct quote from that press conference then he's got to be the one who is responsible for a team that loses. And you can't just lay it off on your second-in-command because it's more convenient to you. Because you don't want to face the press. And then you can't go on Soccer AM afterwards and say, well, it wasn't really a job for me. Because it's just an insult. Now, either do the job or be a consultant and come in and out and don't be presented as the man doing the job. Is those... Small PR elements which can really affect a relationship between fans and a club. And for me, I wasn't I wasn't writing a huge amount about this at this point. I did two or three pieces, I think, for the Mail about this. But I'm, I, wasn't writing a huge amount. But you could still tell the sense of the, of the fans around the time. They just want to be treated seriously. You know? If you're gonna if you're gonna have a director of football and he's gonna be claimed to be the man in charge, then be the man in charge. And if you fuck up, admit you fucked up. Don't just disappear into being sports and talk to Richard Keys and Andy Gray about your gillet. It's just nonsense. Do you think? <laughs> do you, Sorry, go on. Do you
0: think that uh, Power expected more from Sherwood?
2: Uh, that, but that's really a hard question for me to, to answer, Rich. My, you know, my my relationship with Lee Power. It, uh, there was a relationship, a working relationship in twenty thirteen. Um, it, it deteriorated in twenty fourteen. It was non existent until November twenty fourteen when he came up to me on the touchline at Cheltenham out of the blue and offered me my uh, like a, a handshake. Like four days later we were meeting to talk about trying to ramp up the uh the atmosphere for that Bristol City game. So on the back of that I felt as though he was just looking for us to, to give them an extra boost of advertising and he needed the advertiser to help it's sort of there was some conversations here, some conversations there. He obviously didn't like the way that I operated. I don't like the way that he operates. It's it's like People constantly headbutting each other and not stopping. It, it's it's really. I know that it's not healthy, really, but I just had a had a fundamental disagreement with the way in which he runs the club. And and now that I'm so disassociated from the day to day, I I find it 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 shouldn't matter what I say about that now in terms of how I feel about him running. I'm just a, I'm just a fan now who's a hundred miles away and writing about cricket. You know, so it's it's a very different. Me that talks about it, but couldn't tell you what our thoughts are about anything post twenty, late twenty fifteen, because it would be disingenuous of me to claim that I had any kind of idea.
1: It's Gladwell. Oh, it's
0: fluid! Do you have? I mean, you have mentioned that you feel that he is doing a better job now whether it be 2013 or as a fan in 2018, what is he doing better? Because he deserves oh, some he... sort of, you know, I don't want to have you on for an hour just so you can just like slagly power off because, you know... <laughs> Everybody knows. Oh, no, that's not the point. It. No, it's not. Um, and I think um, I think you deserve more credit in that. It's not just an opportunity to use it, use it as a soapbox. Um, but he's here. We've not gone into administration. Um, we've not had any weird bills to pay since he ta- since he's taken over. The problem is is the most important thing as a fan. We're rubbish. Um, <laughs>
2: Well, to an extent, yeah. I mean, different fans have different opinions on what matters most. Sure. Every every fan that puts winning and a decent, decent game of football and value for money at the top of their list. Um, there are others that are more concerned with different aspects of it. Yeah. And also, you're absolutely right to point out that just because I find various elements of his reign objectionable doesn't mean that I can't put my hand up and say, and have done many times in print, that there are elements to the way in which he sorted things that I felt at the time, and still do now, were reasonable and made sense, were good for the club at certain points. He did keep the club from going into the administration. And if the club had gone into administration at that point, there was suggestion from the Football League that it could go further than that because it would have been strike number three. And that is something that, yes, you have to be thankful for. You can't be thankful to someone for that for their entire reign and they have to still be upheld to standards that you would expect of an owner of your football club. I don't think that he has the relevant community spirit that is needed. I don't think that for a small club as as Swindon is, it's not a big club, it's never been a big club. It needs to have a knowledge of its community and a working relationship with its community and there are people within that club that strive very hard to do it. People like Adam and Kay Wainwright do it regularly with the business contacts they make. I'm sure Steve Anderson makes an effort to do it as when he's available. But there are there's not from Lee Power, you don't get the idea that he wants to be Mr Swindon. He doesn't get he never got that idea. He's, he's he's in and out of the country and he runs it a little bit aloof. That's his style. He's definitely stopped that club from having huge financial problems. He has to be making money out of it somehow. I don't know for certain where that money comes from because that club doesn't really make money, with the exception of transfer fees. And even they get paid in instalments and they probably have to cover other things other payments. He's obviously got a deal with this training ground, which, if it gets built, will be a huge asset to that club, presuming that the club owns it. And I don't know what the legals are within that document. Obviously the PR has said that the club will own an element of it. And I think that that he has a section of it to build some sort of holiday homes or stables or some sort. of of extra bits to it and I know and like Fraser Digby and I believe him when he says that it will be a good investment for the club and for the town provided that it is the club and not the owner who owns that piece of land I like a lot that he's finally willing to talk to the trust who do phenomenal work and Steve Myson has been fantastic for that organisation over the past three years, I think that it's great that they are finally working together to do that Um, I hope because that could be the single biggest thing for the future of this football club if they own their own stadium, Mm. even if it is in Mm. association with the fans, which I think is a fantastic safety net as well. And these elements have all been creeping in in the years since I stopped covering the club. And these things are good and they're progressive and they make sense and they're good PR. And it sort of makes you think, well, did I give him too harsh a judgment at the time? If I'd been told this was his entire plan, I might have been a little bit more lenient in certain aspects, but I still wouldn't have changed my opinion of how he treats individuals, his attitude towards business and his general persona and the way in which he runs a club which is not a community club under his control. It seems as though with Clem Morfuni there, there's been more of a PR element. I've seen that he sat down with Owen at the Adver and he's he's talked about this and he's been open and transparent and, and that's good. And that's a positive step. And that might be that just power stepping back and, and allowing that to happen is part of that pathway to being a better community club but that's all I have ever wanted for that club is for it to realise it's standing and that it is not a big club and before it has aspirations to be a big club it now needs to grow its fan base organically by being a community hub, by being the place where businesses come to to hold their events by being the place where dads and moms bring their uh, sons and daughters by running the sort of fun days that get people excited by football and not just expect them to turn up because it's on and it just felt from my time there that he just expected it people just had to come to his club because there was football and i wanted more and i think the the community of swindon deserves more and the fan base of swindon deserves more than that and that's that was one of my biggest objections on top of the fact that he treated me as an individual on occasions, not particularly well. It, it was this feeling that he hadn't recognized what lower league clubs need to bond. And he also had the track record, which you can't go into too much, that I was a bit uncertain about. Those two things put together makes you uncertain about an individual. But since then, he started to do things which I would applaud. Um, whether or not he's been completely in control of them, I don't know whether he's handed them over to Morfuni. I don't know, but if you take football out of it now, which is a ridiculous concept, but if you do take football out of it, uh, it's better than when I was there. But as you say, (laughs) shit. So (laughs) I mean, that can can cancel it all out.
0: Just a couple more questions, and then we'll call it a night. Now you're a fan, and you make comments online on social media as a fan which you've already alluded to many yep. people agree with what you've uh, put but many people don't yep. you get the comments as you've again already mentioned things like asking uh, ask him when he's going to drop the jilted ex-girlfriend act the sad <laughs> and things like is he still not over it is that just nature of the beast coming from journalist to
2: fan uh, well i can promise you that it's not an act in that uh Everything I'm saying is what I'm feeling. I'm not making it up. I'm not. I'm not trolling or anything like that. No, that is an honest opinion. Mm-hmm. And luckily, there's a thing on Twitter called unfollow button. And if you don't like it, you can use it. Which is, I mean, I'm not too bust if people want to use it. Um, and if they don't, if they do use it, but I keep getting retweeted onto their their uh, timeline, then someone just pop me a message. I'll block them, and then we can all be done with that kind of issue. But I express how i feel on a platform that is there for people expressing how they feel and it is absolutely right that some people out there disagree with me because if everyone agreed with me it would be very strange and i'm always up for talking about it in a manner that is at least semi-cordial as anyone who's taken me up on my offer to have a pint anywhere uh where i am obviously i'm not not, not anywhere, that would be silly. But it, just to have a pint, as, as I did when I was covering the club and people wanted to chat, I tried to make an effort to talk to people, and I always will. And sometimes when you actually have the chance to speak in person rather than judging purely off what they write on social media, then you get a more rounded opinion of, of who they are and what they do. And this, again, is what journalism, journalism is about, is more than just looking at social media for people who are able to conduct it in a, in a proper full way. And I'd like to. If people do have a real issue with me, and they are willing to have a conversation, I'll always have a conversation. If all they want to do is call me, a then I'm just, just not going to talk to them because it's just pointless. It's just it, that's not the way any kind of civil society should work. I don't call them a imprint. I've never called anyone. A, I've been called it by the owner of Swindon Town several times in the space of twenty seconds, but I've never called anyone a imprint. And I and I will always have that chat always have that chat. I disagree with things that are going on at the club on occasion this year, last year, not so much. I remember mentioning on social media I thought Flickcroft was a fairly decent appointment. Obviously, I wasn't particularly right about that. Um, I I remember mentioning that the association between the trust and the club to buy the ground is a good thing. I've also picked out that we lost in the first round of the 50-year anniversary of the 1969 Cup win to a Hamlet. I think it's fairly reasonable to pick out the two extremes and obviously there's an element of exaggeration because you do a lot of it for a for effect in that sense but the the underlying message of the tweets will still be what i feel and you know what what's the point in twitter if you're not saying what you actually think i, I mean there's literally no point for the thing so if you, do, if you want to hear from me and don't follow me, let me know, I'll block you.
0: Finally, I hope this is uh, to end on a good note. It's a sad start that hopefully goes um, a little bit more positive because back in about 2016, you wrote an article for When Saturday Comes magazine. And it broke my heart to read it at the time and it talks about how f- covering Swindon made you lose that loving feeling for, for um, as an old song once said. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm now you're working in cricket now you're, um, now you're away from the sport clearly, I mean you're doing your um, half marathons now you, you, you've got a <laughs> smile on your face more now, is the support, is the love for the Swindon coming back
2: you know, maybe it would if I could actually go and see them more, uh, it doesn't allow either the jobs that I've done over the last three years have really allowed for it, so I would like to go back more, I only saw Swindon play two or three times I think last year so that's why I can't really comment on, or, on really how good they are, apart from highlights. Mm. Um, I would like to think that maybe I would be more susceptible to it. I definitely view them differently to what I did when, when I was 21 years old. But maybe everyone does between 21 and 31. Yeah. I, don't know. Um, I think that you don't stop supporting the club that you that is your club. But I've felt a bit of a detachment in the last five years, and maybe it'll come back. Maybe it won't, but I'll still be supporting Swindon and I'll still want them to to win every weekend. Sometimes looking at a defeat now doesn't really impact a Saturday as much as it used to. Um, It's impacted it many different ways down the years from feeling miserable to, well, that means I'm not going to be able to speak to any player, so how am I going to do my job? To feeling fairly, well, fairly little about it in 2015, 16, 17. So it might come back, maybe we'll go full circle and in 2020 when we're in the uh, playoff final at Wembley I'll be in amongst the crowd speaking very civilly to people about my opinions on the club. I don't know, it's it's not awful. It's not awful, I I feel an association with the club but not a passion like I used to. There are certain things in the adult world that uh, you get to be a child about forever. Um, For me, I think sport is one of them, uh, and Christmas is maybe another one. Uh, I love it. I love a family Christmas like as much as I did when I was little, and I still get so excited by sport just as much as I did when I was I don't know eight years old and watching the, the Euro '96 uh, semi-final. Uh, sport still has the ability to captivate and take you back to when you're when you're very little and nothing else really matters. And if clubs get it right and they can. I can really get that feeling out of every single person in their community, whether they're a man or a woman, whether they're eight or 80. And uh, hopefully and then we'll get back to doing that. And hopefully I can get over myself and find, <laughs> and find that loving feeling again. That would be great. But I still got so many memories that I can look back fondly on anyway
0: we're going to talk about yes. those uh, those more fonder memories in a future podcast which I look forward to but for now Sam thank you very much thank
2: you good run by him.
0: Terms and conditions apply. 5 years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first.
1: ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Gigi Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, hello Fresh